Good morning. It says there in your worship bulletin, my name is Rob Leacock. I'm a priest and a chaplain at the Episcopal Collegiate School. I also consider myself to be a friend of the cathedral. I do count a number of folks in this community as my friends, most especially my wonderful colleagues, Lisa and Amy. And it's an honor to have been invited to preach this morning. I pray that Christ would make me worthy of this invitation. The gospel lesson that we heard just a moment ago is, well, let let me put it this way. Maybe I ought to have checked the gospel reading before I accepted Amy's invitation to preach. The raising of Lazarus is one of the most unique and uniquely complex passages in all of the Gospels. It's it's regarded as one of the seven signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Seven encounters with Jesus in which something miraculous takes place. There's the changing of the water into wine, the healing of the royal official's son at Capernaum, the healing of the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda, the feeding of the multitudes, the walking on the water, the healing of the blind man, which we heard last week, and this, the seventh, the raising of Lazarus, the seven signs of Jesus. Signs are peculiar things. They are even problematic at times. What do they point to? What do they mean? The raising of Lazarus, as we just heard, is this very long and rather dramatic narrative. It has a a theatrical quality to it, like like a stage play in five acts. The actual raising of Jesus's dead friend Lazarus occupies only a few verses there toward the end of this long passage. But that brief moment is preceded by a series of scenes, each set in closer and closer proximity to the tomb of Lazarus, creating a a complex lens through which we might view this sign. First, a message arrives. It's from Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. Lazarus, your friend whom you love, is sick. And then we get this rare internal monologue of Jesus where he reflects the illness does not lead to death, but it is for God's glory. And so he quietly decides to wait two days before he says anything. And then when he does, Jesus ends up having a pretty odd conversation with his disciples about returning to Judea. Why would you go back there, they ask him. They they were literally just trying to kill you. But Jesus dismisses this concern with, with a somewhat cryptic comment about daylight and darkness before telling them why he wants to return to Judea. He says, Lazarus has fallen asleep. But this is a bit too vague for his disciples, and they have kind of a a funny reply. They sort of say, oh, oh, well, a nap will probably do him some good. Until Jesus tells them plainly, Lazarus has died. And to exemplify their confusion at this, Thomas 
ends up blurting out, well, let's all go then that we may die with him. I don't even think Thomas understands what he's saying. And I'm going to leave that to another sermon. Then Jesus finally arrives at the home of Martha and Mary, and we learn that Lazarus may have died even before Jesus received the message. Four days, Lazarus has been dead. Martha runs out to meet Jesus some distance from the home, and they they have an exchange that is both profoundly human and deeply theological. She says to him, Lord, if only you had been here, if only you had been here. Martha then runs to tell her sister Mary that Jesus has arrived, and Mary comes out to meet Jesus. She's accompanied by a crowd who have gathered, perhaps to mourn and perhaps to witness the spectacle. Mary echoes her sister's agonizing words, Lord, if if only you had been here before they head to the tomb. It's a strange drama, full of complicated scenes and dialogue, entrances and exits, even before Lazarus is raised. Or if you prefer a a passionate symphony, each movement intensifying as Jesus draws nearer to Lazarus' tomb. Signs are funny things. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus often expresses a reticence to offer a sign. We have these stories where where he will heal someone of some infirmity, and then he will tell the person, don't tell anyone. Keep quiet about it. They, They never do, but he tells them to keep quiet about it. Other times, curious or suspicious Folk will come to Jesus and ask him for a sign. They'll demand a sign from him. Show us a sign from heaven. But he never wants to oblige them. I think it's fair to say that often in our own journey, we want a sign now and again, something to give us some insight, something that will point us which way to go or tell us what we should do. But I think we also know that the signs of the sort we're talking about today don't quite work that way. I think sometimes we fixate on on the show rather than the true meaning and purpose. We can can see evidence of this among these seven signs of Jesus in John's gospel where, where the sign and what they signify get a bit mixed up. Right? Moments where Jesus kind of gets reduced to a, a wonder-working nice guy. Right? Someone who at the party can change water into wine. Not just regular wine, but, but good wine. The guy who can literally walk on water and, and then turn the water into wine. The guy who can heal with a word, like he did for the royal official's son at Capernaum. Couldn't he have done that for Lazarus when he first received the message that Lazarus was sick? Some at the tomb even say, didn't he restore the blind man's sight? Could he not have done the same for his friend? Jesus feeds the multitudes with a few loaves and fishes, but then he flees the scene. Why? Why? Because he realized that the crowds were going to try and make him 
a king, and who wouldn't want a king who could give you bread anytime you were hungry? Signs are tricky business. And after this building up of this drama, we finally arrive at the tomb and we come to this unavoidable moment. Perhaps the very climax of all of these exchanges, the tension has been building with each scene and having finally arrived at the tomb, Jesus begins to weep. He wept. Jesus wept, a sign within the sign, perhaps. When you think about it, in some ways it's not hard to imagine But at the same time, there is no other moment in any of the Gospels quite like this moment. There were others there at the tomb who were weeping, Mary and the crowd that had gathered. But for us and for Christians for nearly 2,000 years, the question is, what does it mean that Jesus wept? Some in the crowd say, see how much he loved his friend And undoubtedly, Jesus did love his friend Lazarus. The English translation says that Jesus was greatly disturbed, but but the Greek word here implies that, that Jesus wasn't just a little upset, but rather he was aggravated, he was angry, indignant even. Jesus' tears are are about more than just sentimental feelings for his friend. They are a sign of a of a deeper agony one that prefigures his later agony in the Garden of Gethsemane before his betrayal and arrest. It's Jesus' agony over us coming to a head here, the anguish Jesus feels at our struggle with our world and our lives, the frustration and futility of life that so often consume us. Simply put, that our world and our lives are often not what they ought to be, we know this. We, we can find evidence in the headlines we read or open up social media. We can see it standing on the street corners as we drive home. We can examine our own consciences and find it there. We can see and know at every turn that things, our life, our world, they're just not how they ought to be, that we ourselves are sometimes not who and what we ought to be to our seemingly never-ending frustration, no matter our intentions or efforts, and who or what could deliver us. Jesus has encountered this reality of our futility at every point along the way since the message first arrived from Lazarus' sisters, and the confusion of Thomas and the other disciples, and the sorrow and grief of Martha and Mary, in this crowd of people, bless their hearts, that have come to needlessly insert themselves into the situation. Jesus, he's sad and upset and angry. He weeps that our lives and our world so often come to suffering and grief. And like Martha and Mary, we are left saying, if only, Lord, if only, if only. Jesus stands at that tomb and he weeps, knowing that it will take more than a mere sign to convince 
Martha and Mary and the disciples and this crowd at the tomb and all of us, what is the truth, the way, and the life? And at this gut-wrenching moment, Jesus, in spite of the protests, he confronts even the most grim and ghastly realities of death. His body, they say, has been in there four days. There is a stench, but still Jesus stands there and he calls Lazarus by name to come out of the tomb, a sign of God's glory, even there at the grave. It's not merely the signs that Jesus performs outward and visible, but what they signify, something inward and powerful and transformative. The truth is there is only one way to interpret this sign and the other previous six signs. They all point to that eighth sign. That is Jesus himself and his saving work. Earlier, when Martha confronts Jesus with her plain and earnest human grief, if only you had been here, Lord, Lazarus would not have died, if only, Lord. To which Jesus ultimately responds, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, our Lord and our Savior, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The resurrection and the life, it is Jesus himself. Not a sign, not a facsimile, not a trick or a show he performs, but Jesus' true and saving work born from an unfathomable depth of God's love not just for his creation, not just for humanity, but for you, for me, to deliver us from sin and suffering, to redeem and transform us from the degradation and condemnation of the world, to undo forever death and the very futility and frustration over which Jesus weeps. Through his cross and resurrection in Christ, even if we die, we shall live. And living and believing in him, we shall never die. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.